Report is September 7th, 2020. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 649. She's not a bird, not yet a woman. Overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. A band of brothers. All brothers. All dudes, right? Dudes? Everyone's a dude. Bro. All dudes. Everyone's Bro. a dude. Okay, great. Uh, so manly. So let's, manly. Go, let's go swimming in the river, guys. Uh, and we are, we are here. We love to talk about the things that we love, and we love them more when we love them together. Kind of like a band of brothers in the military. Hey, we're talking about Mulan this week. The uh, the live action remake um, showed up on Disney Plus, not for fifty bucks or thirty bucks or whatever they were charging for it. It's now part of your regular. Uh, it's now part of your sort of regular screaming subscription. You know, that, the idea that Wonder Woman 1984 is coming out on Christmas Day on, on, uh, the Warner's one on HBO Max. Um, and that all their big temple movies are going to be released online. You know, theaters are over. Uh, quarantine has won. There is, there is no more community. There is no more. So let's, uh, let's watch a film about, uh, about family and upholding society and about sort of filial duty and about uh uh you know your your duty to your emperor let's watch uh the live action remake of mulan i'm matt rather i'm here with my comrades in arms pete fenzel hello pete hi matt <laughs> hi matt holy dude hey holy dude hey hey pete hey, um hey. Making trucks. Hey, you know what? Just because uh, you know, just because we were assigned male at birth does not mean our masculinity is not a performance. <laughs> and Mark Lee, hi, Mark. I, I totally, dude. But um, I haven't had a shower in like forty weeks of the entire <laughs> time that I've known you guys. So I mean, yeah. I, I have no explanation for that. None whatsoever. He's secretly a lizard? <laughs> or a dog? Like, we're going to just wipe away the grime, and you're just going to be like a, a talking magic ape. Oh, oh, that's a Mulan V mashup waiting to happen there, right? <laughs> All right, we're we're uh we're going to jump into Mulan. Uh in, in one second, first, uh just want to update on the week of uh the fundraiser that we did in lieu of a gift guide. We uh solicited donations on behalf of the Actors Fund for Everyone in Entertainment. I think that's the full name of the of the organization, the Actors Fund for Every Everyone in Entertainment. And so many of you came through. Uh the good news is that the Overthinking community raised 450 Fifty dollars in contributions, just out of your pockets. Uh, y'all came up with a whole bunch of money four hundred and fifty. Uh, $450 American. And thank you so much for doing that. We are going to match that, uh, and send a donation of $900 on to the Actors Fund for Everyone in Entertainment. That is the good news. And, uh, we talked, um, perhaps at some length, Pete. Last week about the uh, <laughs> about the uh, the good that this particular organization does and the particular need, but it does seem appropriate that uh, the the people who make the work that we love to overthink um, we can support them a little bit in uh, in the holiday season. So thank you very much for doing that. The bad news. <laughs> 
<laughs> is that by our own rules, the uh, the cadre of overthinkers collectively has to watch 18 bad Christmas movies. Now, as we record this, it is uh, Sunday, December 6th. Christmas is on... And, and you know what? Honestly, we're not even going to get to start till tomorrow. Like no one is logging off of this podcast and starting to do. So that is one a day just to give, just to give a, a sense of the scope of our endeavor. So from now until Christmas, we are going to watch. Uh, one a day, bad, uh, holiday movies, not just Christmas movies, holiday movies, all times, uh, all types. In fact, the variety is one of the things that is going to be interesting and to see how the various discourses of holiday ness, how holiday ness is constructed across, you know, a number of different axes in, in, these films. So we will get back to you, uh, with our, they might be written reviews, might be a podcast. Uh, we're a little, we're a little squirrely, but we will on, on exactly what, uh, it's going to depend on what everyone has time to produce, but we will view and review. 18 <laughs> holiday uh holiday films. You you guys excited about this? Pete Mark, you ready to uh you ready to watch some Christmas prints? You ready to watch some uh uh home for the holidays or Matt, whatever? I don't have time for Christmas. I'm a busy professional person with a big time job in the city, so I don't understand why people even make a big deal about Christmas anyway. Yeah, it's a good, I, it's a good one, point. I've seen too much representation of Asian people in cinema with Mulan, and I guess I need to see some uh, good old-fashioned white people in these Hallmark movies. That's the name of one of the movies we're going to watch, Mark. Good old-fashioned white people. Oh, dear. Oh. <laughs> well, whatever, uh, I mean, whatever the problematic racial dynamics of these films <laughs> ends up being, we are going to consume and regurgitate and extrude them in some form. Uh, so, ho, 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 it into a, a discursive peanut brittle of, uh, of holiday movie criticism. So there, there, uh, there you go. And, uh, the main point is thank you, everyone who contributed, uh, to this large gift that we're going to make to the actor. Fund. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, you know, on behalf of um, on behalf of the itinerant gig workers who are, you know, which is the kind of the modal uh, type of entertainment employee. All right, let's dive into uh, let's dive into Mulan. Did you guys rewatch the animated version from uh, from way back before you b- before we watched the live action version? I did. Mark, did you? I watched it after. Oh. I didn't get to finish. I watched almost all of it. Um, but yeah, I saw. I'd never seen the the cartoon. I was familiar with some of the songs. I watched a live action movie on Saturday, and then uh, most of the cartoon today. Got it, Pete. How about you? I have never watched the original Mulan, and I chose not to fix that. Interesting. So, <laughs> so I've not seen the Mulan Disney movie. The new. Uh, it's funny in discussing it. My wife and I call it the Disney movie. Obviously, they're both. Disney movies, but it's it's a it's a something of a different sense, I suppose. So but I've yeah. still never seen it. Well, it all it all depends. Uh, it all depends on what you mean by Disney. <laughs> you know? Indeed, right? <laughs> Disney Indeed. is the place where, when you have to go there, they have to charge you one hundred and twenty five dollars to get in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I should have called it something you somehow haven't to deserve. Um, so, Mark, it probably uh, hasn't. To deserve. <laughs> 
Did you notice how when you write a song in the pentatonic scale, automatically that connotes a kind of culturally unspecific pan-Asian-ness? Are you talking about like during the watching of the animated Mulan yeah, movie? Yeah, the, the animated yeah. Mulan movie. It was just a, it was a little bit of a music theory question for for uh, you know my brother Mark here, my brother in in music theory, who is uh, you know who probably noticed. Did you notice major and minor minor pentatonic was the like the the way that all those songs were all the melodies of those songs were were yeah. put together. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It laid it on pretty thick too. And it's, it's, keep in mind here, we're talking about the the great. Alan Menken, right? Just, um, you know, pulling out the tools from his musical um, box, a toolbox, um, and laying on thick with the pentatonic scales. And, you know, what? It, it, it works, right? You know, like you watch this and like, okay, this fits. Sure. And then you also get like the soaring Alan Menken ballads as well, too. So, um, like, it, I mean, it, it, it is exactly what I expected. You know, like, is it is it problematic? I mean, like, you know, if you, if, if you want to go there, sure. But I will not um, uh, to use this uh platform to criticize alan menken if that's what trying to bait me to do matt rather i'm not going there wait nah. well well actually mm. sorry uh, this is from wikipedia the music section for the 1998 animated film uh in 1994 stephen schwartz was attached to compose lyrics and music uh but then he got pulled away to prince of egypt um the, then he got uh yeah, so so Stephen. Oh, Alan Menken did not do the music. In that no. case, this is trash. This yeah. is just gar- no, 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 no. Not even going to go there, right there. Matthew no. Wilder's demo for a stage adaptation of Anne Rice's "Cry to Heaven" and selected Wilder selected the uh, the composer Matthew Wilder to replace Stephen Schwartz, and then uh, David Zippel uh, to to write the lyrics. But actually, it- that sounds like it was developed by an AI. Like that sentence sounds like it was creation of a machine learning algorithm. That's who's to say that all of Wikipedia isn't. So yeah, these are not these are not Alan Menken songs. Um, yeah, that that uh, so, and the five songs, uh, a sixth originally planned for Mushu, the dragon, but dropped following Eddie Murphy's involvement with the character because uh, apparently they thought all Eddie Murphy could do was be delightful. Was be, you know, a fantastic Disney dragon sidekick. And they didn't realize, as the good people of DreamWorks would later realize, um, you know, uh, I mean, I guess what you could say was that they hadn't seen his face. They were not a believer. Um, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, so just Murphy, to be clear, Eddie Murphy can sing uh, like legitimately. Oh, yeah. Right. See, like, see Dream Girls and then many other like well heck is James Brown fifty dozen center right live uh, many many decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. And that that like and he he uh even in an animated film where he plays the wisecracking sidekick was my point. He he can completely do a song and, and bring down the house. But anyway, the the decision was taken not to give the dragon a song. So the um yeah, so so five songs. And they're they're like it's heavier, I guess, at the at the beginning because it it actually becomes more of an more of an action movie, and it it has that sort of the crowd scenes, you know, and some of the like some of the like the big like army movements or stuff, or maybe the avalanche. Um, right, this is like early computer animation uh, type of type of stuff, and it just like I don't know, I I. Like I liked the songs; they seemed to me like like weak misreadings of of Stephen Schwartz or of um, 
Who's the guy they remind me? Oh, Mark Scheiman. Um, because they're all, they're all sort of clever. They're all like punchy and self-contained. They all have good, like, uh, like that, that kind of cle- the sort of the cleverness style, the kind of the, the, uh, Cole Porter-esque, um, you know, musical theater style. And, and they all, uh, they all do that really well, but there's, I don't know, there's something to me that just like, they're missing the kind of the, the, well, the, just the spark, the spark of spirit that, that, um, the Mencken Ashman songs had, or that like the songs of, of Stephen Schwartz on the whole had, including, I think, in Prince of Egypt. Um, so yeah, but, but like, I was really charmed, uh, again, by the, the animated film. Like it, yeah. it was fun. And for, you know, for all of the ways in which our discourse about a number of things has, has moved on and for all the justifiable criticisms, um, you could make of it on, on any number of grounds. I, I just, I don't know. I found it sort of very affirming, very sort of life affirming, very like, uh, and very, you know, very, very charming. It, it really, it really had a spirit and it was uh it was fun fun to watch uh mark agree disagree yeah totally agree um eddie murphy as the uh comic relief wisecracking sidekick um just like you know him at his finest i, I will say that right um you know <laughs> the, the live action movie is missing something without him there and like the eddie murphy's like manic energy for it um is also kind of mirrored in the um extremely economical pace uh and quickness of this movie, right? It clocks in at only 87 minutes and like 10 of those are credits. Um, it is a very, very fast movie. There's like no, no fat at all to be trimmed on this. And by comparison, I think the live action one drags kind of a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, th- I thought um, it, it's, you know, it's the, the, the animated movie is maybe not top tier of Disney from Disney animated movies from the nineties, but it's a very good entertainment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, uh, sure. And it's so it's a film that's governed by, you know, that's governed by a bunch of oppositions. Um, Man, woman being the obvious one. Uh, But also, I think the sort of the the domestic and the martial is another opposition that's important. The sort of the, the self and the reflection or like seeming versus being appearance versus reality is another one. Um, the the province and the metropolis, right, is another one with the big, you know, the big climactic battle happening in uh, and in the imperial city, um, as opposed to the the live action one where the big climactic battle happens like in a field like outside the city uh and and this is like all kinds of movies right like all kinds of of big budget sort of action extravaganzas it's like a uh, uh there's a bunch of cgi punching in a field and that's that's how the the movie ends. That's how the the climactic battle of the movie happens. Well, I read that as a construction site, like just outside of the Imperial yeah, City. Yeah, it was very it, strange. It was weird. true. They did they did have a there. scaffolding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> rather than it is rather the same movie being... as the Rock skyscraper, pretty much beat for beat, including the locations, <laughs> just slightly different costumes. That's actually Nev Campbell. You just she's wearing a lot of makeup. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just like, and, and I think that the kind of the, the thing that, that makes Mulan sort of fun and that, that makes it even a little touching, the, the animated one, the, the 98 film is that like, um, 
the the idea is that all these oppositions can kind of be collapsed and like everything can be at one you know the 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 duty to family and duty to society right or or duty to to kind of martial things um self and and appearance uh you know um man and woman uh that that these things can be you know can be just sort of reconciled right as 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 the psalmist says right like uh the the lion lays down with the lamb the mercy and truth are, are met together righteousness and peace have kissed each other now this is false right this is not true uh life does not operate like that and there are tough choices to make and and even with uh as much tolerance and and sort of acceptance and recognition of each other as we can muster you still gotta sort of plant your flag somewhere uh, as a person you know like where where because your time is finite you have to to make zero sum decisions about how how you're going to spend it but i you know it's a film for children right and it's it's also a, a kind of a wish fulfillment thing maybe for for adults i'll bet you know um uh, i'll bet that certainly doesn't doesn't hurt it Right, if you can give the adults something while they're uh, while they're watching the children's movie, and that like um, the idea that like oh, it's one of those sort of anything is possible kind of uh, kind kind of stories, and it just it it just feels good. Like at the end, how she you know like she uh, is. Uh, just accepted. She's the greatest hero in all of China and she's uh, rewarded by the emperor and she's accepted again by her family. And by the way, like her boyfriend comes over for dinner, like right, right at the end of the movie. And it's just, it's, and, and Eddie Murphy is, is welcomed into the, the, you know, elite cadre of the, the family guardians. Um, all, all is one and, and one is all. And that is, uh, you know, it's very sweet. And I, I don't know. I liked it for that reason. Yeah. Um, and so maybe this is a good point that I'll start to pivot more towards the live action movie. Well, this is, so the bridge connecting, right? Is of course the broader phenomenon of the Disney live action remake of a beloved nineties animated classic, right? To let's say very highly variable, Results. I don't know how much of a rat hole we go, want to go on down here, but like, let me just restate for the record that the recent remake, live action remake of Beauty and the Beast, like, still makes me really angry. <laughs> you just like think about like the fact that I forked over like so much money to Disney to go see it in the theater huh. um, and got like not even the exact same thing, but something trying very hard to be uh, basically the exact, exact same thing as a uh, classic animated movie from the 90s, but like also turns out to be demonstrably much worse of a product. Like I feel like defrauded, uh, like so, like some sort of like sacred bond and covenant between myself and a movie um, was was torn asunder and trampled oh, wow. upon. Um, yeah, those are my strong feelings there. Um, there's I haven't I, because of that, I have not seen uh, the Aladdin or Lion King remakes um but also because of that my expectations for this were and because i hadn't seen the original mulan like and also because you know they, they made the very smart move and tried not to make uh this live action when a musical right my expectations for this were pretty low which is one of the re- reasons why i got a lot of enjoyment out of this one here um so that was kind of like my relationship with like this whole like animated remake business like mad pete like you know do you <laughs> feel similarly strongly full of rage and anger at the walt disney corporation I didn't hate the the Beauty and the Beast movie quite as much as as you did, but I I definitely respect your your position on it. it. You can criticize it on on a number of grounds, but I don't know, Pete. Do you enjoy the live action remakes, and do you enjoy this one in particular? 
the Jungle Book one is okay. It's pretty good, but it's John Favreau also, and it's also the Jungle Book. <laughs> and it, so it's hard to call it like a beloved property, <laughs> right? Because the, the Jungle Book is kind of like, oh, you want to redo the Jungle Book? Great, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, people have done it before. No one's quite figured it out, and Walt Disney also didn't figure it out. So um, why not, right? And it's got giant animals in it, you know, giant CGI semi-fictional or sort of paleontological beasts. Would you, uh, would you say, Pete, um, uh, would you say that it covered the bear necessities? <laughs> oh, man. Woo-hoo, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you, talk <laughs> like you, too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Enough of this. Let's get down to business, guys. Hey, yo! We got it. There, there's no, your Mulan it, song. It, it, it does feel like they're building a library for the sake of building a library, and they want all these things to be on Disney+. Plus. And to make, you know, making money is fine. You know, nothing wrong with making money as long as you pay people. Um, you know, so what are you going to do, right? Um, I, don't, I don't have a particular gripe with it, but I also didn't go see Aladdin or The Lion King after Beauty and the Beast. So well, take that I, for yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question I had is like, what, what, do, what do you add by getting this, right? I suppose that the 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 quality of the animation, right? Cause like a lot of jungle book is an animated movie. Like a lot of the, the remade lion King, um, is an animated movie, but like, is it, you know, is it an improvement? Like is, is the technological quality and the kind of the photorealistic quality of the photography in lion King, an improvement over the animated lion King. My answer was no, because it, it was this, you know, it was jarring. It was too unfocused. Like the, the, one of the great things about, about drawing is that you can like draw focus. You can direct the eye, which is a crucial storytelling tool in animated film. And that, that you couldn't do that in the, the live action one because every blade of grass was like, you know, uh, uh, swaying in the wind was, you know, rustling with such, uh, such precision that it was, it was almost like too real. It was almost uh, too much to, to sort of, um, to sort of absorb at once. Um, so, you know, what, what do you get? Like, what, what is the purpose of, of doing them other than, I guess it's a cash grab, like it's a way of building a library. Okay. I mean, I, like Pete says, nothing wrong with that as long as you pay people and, you know, as long as you're making good work, right? As long as right, you're putting right. something good, uh, out there into the world. But, but this one, I don't know. I, I, you, you have to see. I think you have to see this one in the context of like a number of changes in the business of the sort of the rise of the, the East Asian movie audience and Chinese in particular, um, as a, like a huge economic force, uh, as where all the, like all the growth is, is in people watching movies and, and paying money to watch movies, you know, uh, in a kind of a globalized world where maybe some of the, uh, culturally lazy, let's say things that the first movie might, might get away with isn't, uh, aren't tolerable anymore. And then this idea of like, I don't know, this, the, to me like false idol, but you know, still this ideal of 
historical accuracy, right? Or like uh, the the idea that there is like a good, there's a good way to do these things. There's like a right, you know, th- there's like a, a true way. There's like a, you know, loyal, brave and true uh, mm-hmm. way to, to, is, is your movie loyal, brave and true, <laughs> you know? And that's uh, actually, oh God, you could do a whole podcast just on, just on that uh, as a slogan. Like, and that like, so is that what we get here? Uh, right. Is that, is that what the live action, you know, the live action Mulan delivers shot with, uh, shot, you know, shot with a whole bunch of, of Chinese and Chinese speaking actors, mostly in New Zealand (laughs) speaking English um something like i read something online of like maybe 40 seconds 45 seconds of the finished film was actually shot in china um but they're you know well, notably in xinjiang province by the way yeah right where the chinese like, government is brutally oppressing the uyghurs but that's all yeah the the yeah i mean i feel like america needs to get the concentration camp plaque out, plank out of its own eye but yeah it's you know not great <laughs> it's not it's not a great look and it's also not great um and the uh you know so where like what what do what do we get like do we actually get something that even you know, that even meets the purported aims that even addresses the purpose, what you imagine, I guess the aims of, of this enterprise would be. I would suggest perhaps, I, I think to, to add a little bit to what you had said, I would also add the Terminator Genesis uh, <laughs> phenomenon being that a lot of the audience, you're expecting that a lot of the audience for this movie didn't have movie theaters where they lived when the last movie came out. And so you're not just going to release the last movie because it's old fashioned now and it doesn't keep up with the newer movies. But at the same time, you want to be, you know that on some level people would respond to this and would want to see it because they've heard of the older movie and, and maybe they saw it on DVD or they, you know, they saw it, um, I guess maybe not on VHS in this case. So, so in that sense, did they provide a spectacle that you would want to go see in a movie theater. Of course, you didn't necessarily get to go see it in a movie theater because of COVID. Um, I mean, I think what you really end up with Mulan is a Disney-friendly kung fu franchise. That, that's This movie felt like a kung fu movie that could have been called anything, and only because of the... Um, sorry, it's called Mulan more because of its association with the folktale Mulan than with the old Disney movie Mulan, which, of course, I haven't seen, but my sense of it is just very, very different. Um, in many respects, I don't know, Mark. Maybe you've seen both movies, so maybe you have a better chance of where the better sense of where the jumping off point is about this. I mean, but for me, the- it was like Donnie Yen is in this, Jet Li is in this, right? Like, there's there's just as much fan service for uh, kung fu movie fans as there is for Disney fans. Yeah, it is. It is very much a Disney movie for sure. But let's sort of kind of step back to like you know what this movie is trying to accomplish and, and, and did it, 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 did it accomplish it? Like it, it's very strange, right? Like there's, there's absolutely this kind of general Disney strategy thing going on of, you know, going after the Chinese market um, and, you know, trying to establish itself as a cultural force there, pun intended um, because, you know, they tried to freaking sell star Wars in, in mainland China and they kind of failed at that or they did not really succeed uh, super well. Um, this movie also did not do well in Chinese theaters um, because, Right. There are like over a dozen adaptations of the Mulan story um, shot, you know, 
in China by Chinese uh, uh, crews for Chinese audiences. Every um, month. And so from what I understand, <laughs> right, this was kind of met with a shrug. It's like, okay, like, no, we, you know, we, we've, we've got this already. Um, I can't remember Pete or Matt, like whoever said, like, you know, this is like a Kung Fu movie, but with a Disney veneer on it, like absolutely 100 percent. Right. You know, like all the um, kind of the, the, the stylish moves like they're there. You've seen it before as well. Um, and yet, okay, here's what makes this a Disney movie as opposed to like, you know, a proper Chinese movie. And I would give full credit to my wife, who is a Chinese American person um, for this destitute observation <laughs> is that um, at the end of the movie, the dad apologizes for, um, you know, being mean to Mulan and not, you know, letting herself actualize and all this kind of stuff to which she responded. That would never happen. A Chinese dad <laughs> never says that he was not right. Never admits that he was incorrect. And instead, right? So, so instead of that, you know, he admits he's wrong. There's a tearful reunion. They hug. Oh, that's so nice. Right. Not so Chinese. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like there is... The movies seem to be reflecting a cultural gap that was not perhaps much discussed. And Mark, you might want to reflect on it more than I'm capable of, which is the difference between being Asian American and being Asian from Asia, right? Like that, that something that seems notable and exciting and new and interesting to see in an American theater or for American audiences because of the way that it represents you, you know, there's whole parts of the world where everything is like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's sort of to that point, right? Like, you know, we talked about crazy rich Asians on this podcast before, right? It's this enormous phenomenon among the Asian American community, uh, or you know, at least you know, here in, in my circles of the United States, just landed with a complete dud in Asia proper. I was like, right. so <laughs> this is Tuesday, right? Yeah, exactly. I live here. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, they had a they had a wedding in Singapore. Okay, I live in <laughs> Singapore. They had a wedding here. Great. Um, so, but that that's that's interesting. I think it feeds into a bunch of the other things about this movie. But but also, I feel like this didn't feel to me like a great Asian American movie either. It's not. It's not yeah. at all. No. As much as I can guess. So, I mean, what, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, or, um, yeah, I can try so and you can correct me. If you the, none of the major leads are Asian Americans on this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most prominent um, uh, Asian American actor is uh, who uh, the guy who I respectfully, with like with, with great honor <laughs> and filial piety, referred to as the Chinese uh, American dad who plays a dad in everything. <laughs> That he's in, you know, the what I'm guy talking from 24. About, right? He's great in 24. <laughs> yeah, I believe oh. he was. The, I believe he was the general in uh, in Arrival. You know that guy. Uh-huh. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He's, he's in everything. Yeah, and he's great. <laughs> um, but no, there was. There, it just did not have that sort of uh, cultural resonance at all. I mean, like I'm, I'm, I don't really recall if it did in 1998 either. Looking at the cast, or I mean, not one, of course, being a prominent Asian American uh, uh, actor as well as, as B.D. Wong and um, well, <laughs> Pat Reed and George Takei as well too, like. Um, but that shows you how much time has changed, right? That they, uh, they, you know, it's like, hey, Japanese voices for this, uh, um, for this, you know, Chinese story. Like that's close enough. This works, sure. Why not? And, and Leia Salong goes well too. Right? You're in Singing the, you're in the right hemisphere, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it does not pass muster, of course, in 2020 when you're making again making a movie for both American and Chinese audiences. So lots changed over the years for sure. Uh, I would like to point out. Of course, that Rosalind Chow, a.k.a. Keiko O'Brien, is in this movie, which was really, really nice to see because uh, everyone loves Keiko O'Brien. Oh, yeah. Who's she in this movie? She's the mom. Uh, oh, and, and, I, yeah. and I think that it pointed to one of the phenomenons that to me was part of its inauthenticity and also its Americanness, which was that 
So, and, and I associate this with movies that are set in the mid 20th century in the South about racism, right? Where like the white actors who are playing the racists in plays like that, movies like that, tend to be not Southern and tend to put on really thick Southern accents that strain credulity. And again, Mark, you're from the South and I'm not, so maybe you don't experience it this way. But in my sense, it's like, that's a pretty bad Southern accent that that guy is using. And I and I per- have perceived it at times as being something of a psychological shield. Like the person doesn't want to actually identify with the terrible person. The actor doesn't want to identify with the terrible person that they're playing in the movie. So they don't. Right. They 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 make this caricature by overstating their hostility and kind of performing it excessively. And it also might be an element of the direction because you want this person to very clearly be the villain and not make them too sympathetic. It felt to me like the mom in this movie was so the way that she was stringent about the way that she wanted Mulan to live felt like nobody involved had an authentic sense for what a person who did that would actually be like, or didn't want to say like they knew, but they didn't want to say because they didn't want to be associated with it. Right. They didn't want to have that edge of cruelty. Right. That, that, that uh, comes with it. They, they, or, and so they exaggerated it. Right. It felt, it felt inauthentic. I don't know if you had the same experience um, with that one. Uh, Not so precisely, but I mean, again, this is a Disney movie. They pull their punches right, right <laughs> on right. this, right. There's, you know, yeah. like the, the hard edges have been, have been smoothed out, and again, it's like this is not meant to be a historically accurate movie. Like, the, well, this is the the kind of the the weird uh, kind of cross purposes that this movie is trying to do, right? They they went through these great lengths to try to increase greatly increase the historical, the authenticity, cultural and historical authenticity of this movie, especially compared to the 1988 movie, for all the reasons that we've just been talking about. Um, and yet, it still retains this like very large fantasy element. Um, to let itself off the hook for anything that is not stringently um, historically accurate for it, right? So, I mean, this might be a good opportunity then to pivot to, like, to, to the uh, to the magic, to the force. <laughs> if this, <laughs> if this is a Jedi movie, <laughs> it's not not right. Like, use the chi, use right. the chi, Mulan. Right. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, that didn't that didn't throw me off to be to be really clear, right? It's like, okay, fine, there's magic in this. Like, I'm rolling with it. There's a okay, there's a phoenix, uh, and it's kind of the magical aid and and all this kind of cool stuff. And there's oh, there's a witch. Okay, she's she's definitely transforming from you know a bird into a woman and back and forth again. And uh, and okay, I'm I'm down with this. I'm I'm along with this. Like you know, again, bird, my expectations. Were, woman. Yeah, <laughs> 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 my, my expectations were low. Um, and you know, I, I was just like willing to kind of accept it all and, and, uh, and enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, Matt, what do you think of all well, that? that? I, I mean, I, I think Pete, you're onto something where you, you can't, it, it was almost an impossible brief creatively. And this, this is sort of the answer to, to the question that I wanted that I had raised kind of way back when we pivoted to talk about the, uh, to talk about the film, which is that like, um, you you have all it's being made by an american company right like and and you have all of these american anxieties about uh about a number of things right and uh things about kind of representation right because of the the terrible things that have been done on that front 
in Hollywood cinema before. Things about like child rearing and, you know, a sense of like a sense that like children's entertainment, which this this is, even if it isn't. Um, like it's hard to imagine a kid being really entertained by this because like even the, the, um, you know, even the, the ting, 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 which is what I call, uh, pew, pew, pew without guns, right? Even the, the sword stuff and the, the action, it's, it's so, I don't know, it feels so staid. It feels so kind of like, dutiful and so sort of grim i mean my my read my hot take on this movie is it it suffers from a uh like a marked lack of eddie murphy (laughs) and that like what this movie needs is you know a donkey you know or or you know or mushu the dragon but like it needs or or a harvey fierstein right that matter well harvey fierstein yeah, there's no, it, it had like, for for all the whatever, the kind of advances in our kind of public discourse, in our mainstream discourse about, about gender, the, the cartoon had a lot more camp, like it had a lot more humor and a lot more kind of a, a humane attitude towards the kind of the, the gender burlesque of, um, you know, of the kind of the all male environment of the army. Right. You know, like, it, it oddly like, you know, more authentic in that regard. Right. Because it like really squarely addresses the toxic masculinity um, of that would be common for um, boys and girls of a young age, you know, kind of target audience to like be experiencing and being like very confused by in middle school. Let's yeah. But um, you know, I don't know, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make a man out of you. <laughs> like that's uh it's, yeah, not, I'm not sure that this this film has that. So so you have all these American anxieties uh, about like dealing with these things um, very gingerly, and then the idea that like that you know it has to be somehow like culturally specific to a culture that is not the culture that is producing the film. And I think Mark's point earlier is a really good one where it's just like, you know, the, the kind of China and a couple of ancillary national cinemas, right? Like how, well, calling them ancillary is not, uh, not fair probably either way, but like, um, and a, a couple of related national cinemas, 100% have this territory covered, right? Like this is not, uh, it, it is not necessary that Disney make, uh, that Disney make the Chinese epic, you know? Um, and that's, uh, and you end up with something when you have all of these sort of American anxieties and kind of like shibboleths about representation, about child rearing, about things that are sort of psychologically appropriate and kind of edifying, like of what, what would constitute, um, what would constitute a happy ending in in Mulan in a like uh, in a historical in a historical realistic Mulan right if you look from a sort of communitarian perspective like the idea that the individualist is eradicated and punished and you know shamed like that would be a happy ending from the point of view of a certain kind of like society that values homogeneity right like it it is the it is the kind of the highly individualistic um 
it is it is the highly individualistic culture that says like well i am you know i am uh i am what i am and everyone has to accept that and that is the only that is a that is a kind of sine qua non of of what a happy ending is that is like a necessary condition of a happy ending uh in this film so like the dad has to apologize to me like you know sort of patriarchy softening seems to be another one that like uh, that goes that uh, kind of reexamining itself in a uh, in in a in a way that just connotes its uh, in a way that connotes its allyship and and I don't know I feel I feel like you end up like it I I'm struggling to make a, a larger point here but I think you have to if you're going to do this movie and not a sort of animated Fantasia for children, um, I think you actually can't square the circle. You know, you can't like, um, you can't make, uh, make everything one. You sort of have to hang your hat somewhere. You have to hang your, your military helmet somewhere. Uh, and that like, and by not doing that, I don't know, it ends up being, it ends up being kind of a nothing burger, um, because it's not, because it won't it won't take a position. Um, it, it tries. Yeah. It tries to with the with the whole like woman in charge sort of thing, right? Pete, I think you were trying to get in there and say something about that. I was trying to get in there a couple times, um, but it, we're all passionate about this. I know I could talk about this movie for like a half an hour straight, which I'll avoid doing. Um, but I did want to point out part of the confusion about what the moral of the movie is could potentially be attributed to the folktale it's based on. If you go back to the primary sources. Uh, two of which are the Ballad of Mulan, which is from somewhere between, say, 400 and 500 A.D., give or take 20 years. And the, and the Song of Mulan, which is from somewhere between 600 and 900 A.D., give or take 20 years. They have very different messages. And so the older piece, it actually ends with something that's referenced in the movie, which is the story of the rabbit. Right. It says uh, most people tell the gender of a rabbit by its movement. The male runs quickly while the female often keeps her eyes shut. But when the two rabbits run side by side, can you really discern whether I am a he or a she? So like the the huh. most oldest and most ancient Mulan story is a story about gender conforming and kind of gender performance and gender experience and sex versus gender and kind of social roles of gendered people. Also, in that story, it's worth noting that Mulan is in the army for 12 years and they never figure out that she's a woman. Uh, it's a different kind of situation. Right. Um that is a smelly, smelly person. Uh, never takes a bath. Um, in the Song of Mulan, which comes later, the end of it goes, and these are, of course, English translations, and we can post them in the show notes. Um, today, they see Mulan again. The comrades wait outside. Uh, they go back to Mulan's village because this Mulan is a Cincinnatus figure, right? Sure, Cincinnatus is a Mulan figure. They're they're rough contemporaries in terms of where the stories when the stories. Yeah, Cincinnatus is older, um, but the idea being that like. A, a citizen who is called up to duty, who performs their duty valiantly and well, but then eschews further glory and returns to, in the case of Cincinnati, his farm, and in the case of Mulan, her family. And uh, and, and this is it's virtuous that they that they have this piety and they have this respect for the place that they came from. And in the Mulan story, right, the old comrades, the old soldiers, go back to Mulan's village and they meet Mulan as a woman and. And uh, presenting as a woman and they see Mulan again. And to quote, although they recognize her voice, her appearance is completely different. They dare not approach her as they are perplexed if they are perplexed. And that is where 
the fictionalization ends. And the last four lines are a commentary on contemporary politics at the time of the writing of the story uh, or the, the poem, the song. If the officials of this world could display the same virtue as Mulan, their loyalty and filial piety would not be lost. Their fame would last throughout the ages. So you have two Ur-Mulan stories, one of them which embraces the idea that it's about gender, and the other one really doubles down on the idea that it's about duty. And it's about sort of gender being an obstruction, gender only being notable to the extent that it is an obstruction to duty. And I'm using the word duty because I'm framing it in a Western sense, right? You would use what the, the, the concepts that are relevant in terms of social conformity and social role and, and face and respect and all those things. What is called in the movie honor, right, uh, is uh, as opposed to duty per se. Um, but it's interesting because the Mulan story doesn't have an obvious conclusion even in the context of the civilization it's from, because the civilization it's from has been around for thousands of years and the Mulan story keeps getting retold all the time. So uh, you, there's not one authoritative version of it, as far as I know, unless there's a movie everybody has seen from like the 80s, right? Which is like, oh man, that's the Mulan movie. You guys have no idea, right? Um, and uh, like, I don't know what the default ending would be. And this movie seems to reflect, I think, that it doesn't know what the default ending is supposed to be either. Um, what, what the, what the moral of the story kind of is, is anchored on. It's more the situation and the pressures I think that Mulan faces. And I think, I mean, if you want to make a leap, a sort of, uh, anthropological leap, and I will shut up because I said I wouldn't talk for too long. I think that in general, as a, as a quote unquote, Western, uh, appreciator of poetry and literature, I tend to focus on endings a lot. And I don't necessarily think that that is the same in uh, Eastern literature. I don't think that the sort of flow of plot and structure operates the same way. And uh, the story doesn't become entirely validated or undermined based on what its ending is. Um, and I'm, I'm basing that in a sort of vague sense of some things I've read about Monogatari, which is a different culture, but just generally like, I don't, I shouldn't take for granted that the end of the story is going to give me a really firm notion of like what the story was supposed to be about or its value the whole time. Uh, and it's confusing when it doesn't. Um, for me, um, even though maybe it wouldn't be if I were more experienced with this mode of literature. I'm not sure. So anyway, Mark, sorry, what were you saying? Well, just to, to wrap up that piece there, right? You know, it's confusing about what the point of the movie is, again, because it is trying to check off like all the boxes. Yeah. Can, also, and also the movie do. is like has a really weird this movie has a really weird relationship with sedition. As is every movie that has to get the rubber stamp of the Chinese government. Right. Mm, Where there's there's a there's somebody. That, yeah. So, like, what I mean, and this this goes back to the for me the movie Hero with Jet Li, who's also in this movie um, as the God Emperor, right? Who gets uh, who has magical powers and who uh, gives the full throated endorsement of the protagonist uh, in in a sort of uh, in a, in, a, in a style reminiscent of the the uh, French court dramas and comedies of the 17th century, right? It's like, oh, the king has come in the end to fix everything. Right. Um, the emperor is here to, to rubber stamp everything that's happened and tell us all it's OK. As they say, um, uh, as they say in Hamilton, here come the general. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I guess that like there's a there's a I don't know how organic it is in China to want to make stories about people who seek to undermine authority for otherwise good reasons to be evil. Right. Um and because I do know that it feels uncomfortable from my perspective when there's a movie like that, where somebody has every reason to want to undermine authority and they are framed as heroic 
for not doing so, or they're framed as villainous for doing so. And in this case, all we really know about the antagonists, uh, the the Khan and his uh, his witch, as it were, his warrior, um, or rather the warrior who the Khan is hers, as it turns out, right? Uh, I don't work for you, you work for me, that kind of thing. Um, she's upset because she has chi powers, but she can never get accepted in society. I think she's supposed to be like a Wu shaman. Uh, she never gets accepted in society because she's a woman and her resentment has driven her to sedition and revolution and joining a foreign power against her own government, who, of course, is the rightfully ordained government under heaven. Right. And so it is it is a moral crime to oppose the emperor uh, because, you know, heaven and your ancestors are in heaven and, and heaven endows the emperor with its authority. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is in the movie. Right. Um, and uh, and then the Khan is angry because the emperor killed his dad. And that seems like a decent reason to be angry, right? Like, like that seems like, like that seems like a grievance, right? Now, granted, the emperor says that these people are murderers, right? That they are gonna, and it's it's supposed to be really bad that they're gonna lay waste to the imperial city. It's bad subjectively because it's described to Mulan that she, that her people are at stake, even though her people live in that kind of uh, communist collective farm, uh, aka the Globe Theater. Right. Uh, yeah, they that, live in uh, they live in an Elizabethan theater, and it's also yeah. pretty clear that actually this is true in the animated version as well. They don't really know like how goes the war, you know? Right, they're, right, right. They're kind of just doing their thing. You go yeah. off, you do the war, but it's like it's far away, it's remote, and like other than a kind of a notional idea of allegiance to your god emperor, like and protecting, you know, the idea of the empire, like it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of bearing on your day to day day you know yeah so so it's weird it's it's yes the guy's wearing eyeliner but i think the emperor might also be wearing some makeup i, I hope that's a real beard that would be very impressive if jet league roll that facial hair himself um but it's 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 just um I, you have it's to quar- come Pete, to this, it's, it's quarantine this, we're all we're all growing it, beards that's true i've actually cut my beard off i think three times now wow. i've grown big beards like three or four times i've looked like a, a ewok or, or a wookie depending on whether you're looking downward up or upward down uh but anyway matt as you would say you know in in paradise lost the devil is the villain because it's paradise lost in this movie the emperor is the hero because it's mulan right or the emperor isn't the hero the emperor is the the, the locus of goodness and the witch and the Khan are the locuses of evil, uh, and and they must be opposed. And so those stakes are somewhat strange, and I wonder whether it is sort of pandering or whether it feels authentic. Because uh, I also have no idea how much modern people, because isn't the current, <laughs> again, here's where we dabbling into waters I'm not familiar with. The current regime in China abolished the empire, right? Well, okay, the Republic, which is the current regime in Taiwan, right? The independent nation of Taiwan, uh, which used to be the Republican government of China, right? They abolished the emperor. And then certainly the Communist Party has not restored the emperor, but they they have restored a a potentate as head of state. I don't right? I don't follow um, all the extended universe stuff. <laughs> if you wait till the after credits, Shanghai Shek shows up, <laughs> and he's like, they're building an island in the South China Sea, and it's him and, and Sean Connery from the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> Oh, uh, peace be upon peace him. Be upon him. 
<laughs> that's uh, that's really. Funny. I, I mean, I you know, I don't know. Like, well, like, no, that's, I, I mean, Pete, you're 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 totally right. Like, because there's there is a to to bring up another like. Um, to, to bring up another John Milton thing, to bring up Areopagitica a little bit, um, Stanley Fish's great gloss on Areopagitica was like free speech for everybody except Catholics. Them we burn. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And that like to, to a certain, to a certain extent, you get like sort of like individualism, individualism for everyone except the Hun. <laughs> it's not that's not culturally accurate um but like the uh right like the huns belong to a different time in history or something it, you're, well the huns are the villains in the animated mulan movie yes and they upgraded them but they forgot to read the wikipedia page on the people <laughs> they upgraded them to so they don't include any details on them other than that they ride horses and are angry <laughs> where <laughs> yeah and where we're a lot of eyeliner yeah 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 exactly um in that sense, they're like what? Like, uh, I guess probably Marilyn Manson never would have ridden a horse. I'm trying to come up with the punchline for that joke. Like, what else is angry, rides a horse, and wears eyeliner? Like, uh, Sauron's Avril- army from the Lord of the Rings. Oh, fair enough. I was going to say Avril Lavigne on her on her bachelorette party, but uh, I don't know. Princess <laughs> Princess Anne in the Crown. There you go. Nah. There you go. A lot of Crown in this one, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of crossover because they have that scene where there's the avalanche that gets Prince Charles, and here it also gets. The, the evil army. And there's also that scene from The Crown, I don't know if you remember it, where Queen Elizabeth personally challenges the president of Argentina to single combat and takes on 20 ninjas while walking through yeah. the site. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, same I mean, it, exact is, same. it is good that, that England is run like Wakanda and that whoever wins a fight on a particular day um, is the, you know, is the, the person who's the person who's in charge, but no, oh, the, did you see the Killmonger shot in this movie, by the way, uh, they did the Killmonger shot, which one <laughs> they did when the, when, when uh, bat lady or Hawk lady, when, uh-huh. when, uh, <laughs> when Daryl Hannah from Blade Runner, uh, takes over the uh, countenance of the soldier. They do the thing where the camera flips a hundred mm. rolls, one hundred and eighty degrees, mm. right, and puts him upside down, indicating the sort of subversion of the proper authority. Which they also do when Killmonger is walking towards the throne in Black Panther, and the camera kind of twists because the world is turning upside down, uh, and the people who are in positions of authority are the wrong people. Um, and so on and so forth. But it's, so. I, I mean, it's, it is interesting. Like there's sort of a limit to how far it can go with the, the sort of the question, the subversion, the questioning, the questioning of authority. Like, and, and from that point of view, I suppose, like it's important that the hawk witch die, right? Like, yeah. because right. she, she represents a, you know, sort of a, a valid, uh, well, like actually all the more because she represents a valid challenge to, to the authority, uh, of the emperor, right? Like, but she's, um, you know, but she's sort of too, she's not willing to sort of buckle down the way that, that Mulan is at the end. And like the, the sort of the filial piety, the last one is, or, uh, what reverence for family, observant respect for family. What was the, I forget what the, the precise words that they used in, in, or was it devotion to family? I think it was devotion to family. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that like, um, you know that that uh she sort of ta- she takes it a little bit she takes a little bit too far so like there is there is a little room to to question authority under certain circumstances you know in in a way that are sort of in a way that is sort of pre-approved um 
pre-approved by the authorities. Uh, Pete, before before we uh, get too long over our time, l- let me ask you a question. Was there a scene in this film where two dragons were fighting over a flaming pearl? <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> oh, by the way, I will say that the notion of implementing reforms in order to forestall or prevent revolution is, I think, the allegory of the phoenix, right? Like the gover- like the social mores need to... F- collapse briefly at times in order to rise stronger. Uh, you know, we need to be like, oh, women can also be officers in the military. And now we have no progressives anymore. <laughs> like, or we have no, like, uh, no revolution. But anyway, yes. So as we've discussed in the Overthinking It podcast before, vis-a-vis, as I referenced ham-handedly earlier, The Rock's uh, seminal film Skyscraper, wherein The Rock completes a Tough mutter vertically uh, in order to... Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I watched it in a movie theater for money. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, it, it was notable because this hotel that The Rock is climbing, right, has this device on top that seems to not really serve much of a purpose, uh, which is a sort of virtual reality planetarium that allows you to kind of use a 360 degree uh, video screen array with projectors all over the place to simulate any sort of environment. And it's referred to as the Pearl, right? And the Pearl catches on fire because the building is on fire because it's called Skyscraper and he's climbing up the building, it's on fire. And there's the rock and then there is this other kind of beefy pro wrestling kind of dude and they fight in the Pearl. They fight in the Flaming Pearl. And we talked about in our Skyscraper podcast how this is a trope in... Chinese mysticism and and architecture in particular, the notion of two dragons fighting over a pearl, right? As a sort of, and there's notions of yin and yang, and there's notions of balance, and there's notions of conflict. um, And uh, and that this is a sort of noticeable uh, motif, right? That light motif, perhaps, that you can find in much the same way you would find somebody dying and rising on the third day, right? In, in, In a Western story, even if you're not specifically referencing the particular story, it's something that is built into a lot of the culture because it's kind of pervasive through the storytelling. Um, or maybe like somebody uh, turning into a frog, right? Something like that. Yes, we have a scene. And, and my, my contention now is that every single movie that Westerners make for Chinese audiences has some consultant who tells them to put in it a scene of two dragons fighting over a pearl so that it's resonant with the Chinese audience now. And, and maybe that's just sort of confirmation bias on my part or, or where I am looking for this and I find it. But like there's a big flaming stone, right? So there's the fight with the where the avalanche happens where – the um, the Rurars, the Rugars, the Proto-Turks, right? The Proto-Mongols are flinging flaming Atlas stones at the testudos of the Chinese Imperial Army. And the lady who has turned herself into a swarm of bees. No, she's turned herself into bats. No, she's turned herself into starlings. She's transformed into the CGI from Twister. And she is attacking uh, <laughs> the testudos in order to lock them in place so that the trebuchets can hit them with the flaming stones. Uh, then this is where Mulan kind of awakens to her chi. This is where Mulan has, of course, uh, decided to embrace her true self and thus achieve her full magical power. This is where she learns how to like lift the X wing, right? She she achieves. She goes the, the full yeah the full fifth element. She goes full fifth element, yes, and she is able to manipulate the proto-Mongol army into shooting the flaming stone at her, thus taking control of it and using its energy uh, to save the Chinese imperial 
uh, army rather than destroy them. Of course, she does this by routing and destroying the other army, but that's not we don't care about them, uh, which seems to note as well with something the vizier says in the Hall of the Emperor, which is that the proper way to use chi is to save people. And if we if we think, OK, well, who are the people in the mores of this movie, which is pretty imperialistic and dehumanizing, um, the Chinese people are the people. Right. And so Mulan is the dragon, the protector dragon, who is is the sort of balance to the uh, attacker dragon. Right. And, and they're denoted by flying animals. Uh, and that's why I'm saying it's not just that they are strong, it's that they have these avatars that are flying animals that are their sort of psychodramas or their sort of phantasmagorias. Right. Like the, the golden eagle versus the phoenix. Um, and are similar to these kind of dragons. And it's in particularly notable because in the Mulan cartoon, that scene is memorable and notable because it involves a dragon cannon, right? Um, as I've been told of some kind, or a dragon rocket. And so they changed it to a flaming stone. So that's something that was done on purpose, is, is my contention. Uh, and, and so in that sense, yes, there is a scene in this movie in which the sort of spiritual warfare of the two dragons fighting over the pearl takes place, and the resolution of the sisters are doing it for themselves uh, subplot, wherein the women need to learn to support each other rather than allow the patriarchs to split them apart and set them against each other. Um, AKA uh, Hawkwoman needs to support Mulan's promotion in order to like support herself as a woman in the workplace. Um, that that all comes to bear because they are in this 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 mystical war of balance against each other, right? They are not they are not like mortal enemies. They are swirling dragons, right? They are they are mirrors of each other. They are not. Uh, they, they, Mulan does not under an obligation to destroy this woman. Uh, they they kind of circle around each other and kind of have to understand each other. Um, and they're in combat, but like you know. They merge, as she says, right? They do end up merging. Because it was she, she well, goes right. nail. And she he goes pick. She goes piccolo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the um, the like I I uh, it, it was. I watched this this movie with my girlfriend, and every time it seemed like there was going to be a meeting between Mulan and Hawk Lady. Um, the I leaned over and whispered, "We are not so different, you and I." <laughs> <laughs> and uh it it was about the fourth or fifth time when she actually said it to uh uh to Mulan but I you know I was waiting uh I was waiting there for the you know the kind of the the trope of the the trope of the reflection to be cashed out in that um in that particular moment uh, so what uh, what about the ending of this? There's some CGI punching and magic. Oh, also like, uh, well, I mean, I sorry, I want to go back to the whole like I want to go back to the beginning of the podcast and do the whole thing over again, but and have it be about like intrinsic virtues versus uh, instrumental virtues and whether yeah. honor whether honor is a is a kind of face saving or whether honor is a you know a kind of deep consonance with the self and like this these are things that that the animated film blessedly kind of glosses over uh by ma- by sort of making all one right like um that uh all all tensions are are sort of eradicated but that this film does not really have the luxury of but we can't uh you know we can't sort of do that but like uh we, you know we have um we have uh mulan go back to uh we have you know brienne of tarth right she uh she goes back she she um you know carries a torch for uh mulan all spoilers all books um the like she carries a torch for uh her boyfriend in the army 
goes back to goes back to her home, you know, in in the cartoon boyfriend shows up. Uh, in this one, the, the Imperial Nuncio or whatever shows up to say, uh, Hey, come, come back and, and work for us. So she's made the, the, uh, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, right? Um, so what, what, uh, what do you take away from the ending of this? If there were no other Mulan literature, if we didn't know that this film was an adaptation, Pete, you said you focus on endings. What do you take away from the sequence of like, uh, CGI punching, sacrifice of Hawk Lady, uh, so that, so that Mulan might use her individuality to support patriarchy instead of tearing it down. Um, Mulan's, uh, you know, rejection of the false father the emperor in favor of the true father and then you know really realizing that the the true father is nice to her and so she has to go back to the emperor who is after after all the the you know god ruler father of us all what do you make of that uh sequence of events what i would say so again i i'm looking at it from what i think of as a western perspective so it is very possible that this does have resonances and similar ideas in other interpretations of it. But here's my interpretation of it. When I see a story where at the end the king has to fix things, what that t- says to me is that there is a relationship between the macrocosm, the social macrocosm, whether it's law or quote unquote society or a given nation or a given culture And uh, there's a relationship between the macrocosm and the microcosm wherein some sort of error has taken place, where some sort of mistake and some sort of problem has arisen. And the people who are in the situation, it is beyond them to resolve the problem themselves. And so this is a reason, this is an argument for why you would have a king. In the American system, this is manifest in the power of pardon, which, of course, we're all going to get to see on pay-per-view all sorts of times this year. Uh, As the year comes to a close, they're going to be pardoning people off the top rope and whatnot. They're going to be pardoning people with steel chairs. Uh, They're going to be issuing blanket pardons to all manner of petty gangsters. But, um, But the point being that the reason the president has the power of pardon is because the old British monarch had the power of pardon. And the reason the old British monarch had the power of pardon was the belief that the legal authority as represented in parliament, but also just in law writ large, was overly strict for the realities of humankind, right? And that people were going to make mistakes and they were going to violate the laws at times. And part of the job of the king is to hear petitions for people who want mercy, right? And the reason that you have a person in the chair rather than merely an institution is is because the person is supposed to be able to exercise good judgment and exercise human qualities of mercy and virtue. And of course, the king is supposed to be the most virtuous person in these sorts of systems, right? Um, and so the king is supposed to be able to recognize when everybody else is making a mistake and fix it. And, and that this is the way that I read this, which is that in this case, when Mulan kneels before the emperor and tells him what she has done and, she, and rejects his offer to be put in the guard, right? The emperor has a choice and the emperor chooses in a very canny way. If you if you don't necessarily buy the idea that Jet Li actually has magical powers, which if you've seen his movies, there's a lot of evidence that he does. You know, the one, he's, there's a lot of him and he's only one guy. Um, but when she says, I can't accept uh, your your job in the guard and everyone's like, oh no, this is a great you know faux pas. And then she's, she's committing a horrible, a horrible kind of social sin. She's losing face, right? Uh, And she says, because I have made a promise 
to my family that I, I've, I've lied to my family. I've shirked my responsibilities to my family. I stole from them. I took a vow as a soldier to be loyal and true. And that includes to my family. And so in order to fulfill my oath that I took as a soldier, which is, of course, in your interest. Right. And, and you are the sort of locus of all these things. I have to go back to my family. And, and the emperor has the choice to be like, OK, no, you have to. I just asked you to do this. Right. Uh, it's not a question. Right. I am. Uh, I am Robert Baratheon and you are Jamie Lannister and you are staying in the Kingsguard, whether you want to or not. Right. Um, and uh, and it's not, you know, it's to keep you close and keep your friends close and your enemies closer and all that. Um, or but instead, the emperor says, no, 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 no. This isn't about my authority. This is about my moral authority. And the emperor has recognizes that there is a an error that has been made in this sort of moral calculus of the kingdom. Uh, and it needs to be rectified, which is the way he frames it, of course, elegantly is not we need to give women equal privileges to men because, of course, this is a movie that they're trying to sell to a bunch of people they don't respect, right? <laughs> like, so, so Disney is trying to sell this movie to a bunch of people that they don't respect and don't think can think critically and don't think value human rights. And so they have to kind of pull their punch on how much of this whole kind of women get to be equals thing they're really going to support in this movie, right? It's, it's disappointing, right, to say the least, what they, how short they come up of doing that in this film. Um, but... Uh, the emperor's answer is your devotion to your family and to kind of telling the truth and is worthwhile enough that this is the right decision and nobody should question it because I'm also on board with it. Right. And furthermore, the king sends the emissary to the town in order to make sure everybody is OK with it, because when the, the king makes the decision, in this case, the emperor makes the decision that the society has made a mistake that needs to be fixed. And you recognize that people can't fix it themselves. And then it's the case, Hawkwoman, once she's crossed the line and become a seditionist, she can't not be a seditionist anymore. She was right, right? She was right in saying like, well, I have magical powers. I could do all sorts of stuff, but instead I'm basically a forced servant, right? F that noise, F the emperor, F this whole thing, right? She's not wrong. She's only wrong because she's trying to destroy the emperor and the empire and the kingdom and the mandate of heaven, right? And so the M, but, but she, it's more like she can't go back on it. She crosses the line, right? I mean, in a silly sense, it reminds me of the play Tartuffe, uh, the Moliere play Tartuffe, where the purveyor, the sort of man of the estate is besotten with a uh, con artist cleric and ends up willing his whole fortune to him and like giving him, it's his wife or his daughter or something. And there's also the weird sexual things that happen. And Tartuffe kind of takes over the hypocrite, the hypocritical priest who is uh, in it for, for hedonism, ends up taking over the entire estate. This is all wrong, but the people who are involved in it can't fix it. They made a mistake and they can't fix it. And the job of the king is to show up at the end and fix it. And, and, and he has the authority to do that. He has the power to do that. And that's what the king does in this movie. Now, uh, how does it end up? It, it it doesn't quite land because I mean I think I think Andrea is right on on the nose where the dad apologizing is nice but feels kind of dramatically unearned. Um, it's more of a kind of like end of a sitcom kind of thing. It's fine. I've had um, I've had centuries, if not millennia, of psychological uh, re- revelations of like you know my whole conception of what a person is and what the family is and what the state is has been magically turned around as <laughs> as though by a Hollywood screenwriter. 
<laughs> there is a great Onion article about this, which is like man changes his mind about feminism after reading like 600 pages of queer theory or something along those lines. Like, oh, I never knew. <laughs> like, I I never knew that gender was a construction. Boy, is there egg on my face, right? Um, and uh, uh, the joke, of course, being that like, if he hasn't arrived at this information at this point in his life, there's little reason to believe he's going to just spontaneously arrive at it off screen with nothing else in his life happening to provoke it. I think part of why it's a problem also or why it doesn't really feel earned is that over the course of the movie, you learn all these things about the dad that like the dad was apparently uh, what we would describe as a warlock right? Like, or like that he had chi powers, right? That the dad had magical powers when he fought in the army that are similar to the magical powers that Mulan has, which, of course, are not necessarily when you actually go through the movie, if you exclude Hawk Lady. What are the actual things Mulan does that are magical that actually affect the plot? There's not that many of them. Most of what she accomplishes through magic, she could accomplish merely through doing it like with a tool or something. Right. Um, but she's supposed to be a wizard who is a daughter of a wizard. And at the end, there's no acknowledgement that this guy was ever a wizard. Right. Like it's not they don't really kind of close that loop that, oh, you were really powerful back in the day. Oh, you were this great warrior back in the day. Like, he sort of acknowledges it, but then we kind of turn away from it. I guess what I would say is that uh, the movie goes back and forth. And we would have gotten more into this, I think, if we got into the conversation about honor. And maybe that's something that we need to put into a premium members-only content piece. Uh, that there is a conflict in this movie between what is it that you do or don't do in order to strengthen your bonds and your standing in your community versus what you don't do or don't do in order to inform your Jedi powers, right? Like, and, and uh, the Jedi powers have different rules than the society does. Um, and so at the end, are we prioritizing that Mulan has made a journey in society or are we prioritizing that she has made a journey in Jedi powers? And I kind of feel like the movie does neither at the end and kind of lands like a wet washcloth. Um, but I don't want to be mean about it. I and mean, it Mark, what do you think? It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't crouch and tiger, hidden dragon it where the, the Jedi powers are such an allegory for the, you know, the individual psychology, like so, so perfectly yeah. that it, that it sort of all, um, it all makes yeah. sense. Sorry. Mark, and it doesn't, you- and it doesn't lost boys it either. Where at the end of the crowd, like the social, the social commentary about fathers and, and mothers and grandparents and whatnot is entirely broken down. And the whole world is reduced to being a vampire fight, right? Like it's, uh, it's, it's not like that either. It's not like, Oh yeah, we were all always wizards. Everyone here is a wizard. You come from wizard town. We never told you. Yeah. Right? No, like- that's, <laughs> it's, that's not okay. Because the, the, the goth aesthetic is really uh Delta, uh, real blow when the the villains in this movie are vanquished i think we have to leave it there uh for this episode but thank you very much for listening mark and pete thanks for joining me in podcasting and to everyone who contributed to our fundraiser for the actors fund in lieu of a uh in lieu of a gift guide this year thank you so much for your generosity it's uh it's amazing to see what our community can do together so uh we will be back next week with details of what the christmas movie challenge the holiday movie challenge entails uh and we'll be back with more overthinking a podcast next week till then you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.